Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the programme Tom Secker of spyculture.com, who has joined us twice in the past, back in 2014, to talk about his excellent book, Secret Spies and 7-7, on the 2005 London bombings, and then in 2015 to share his concerns, or perhaps general disbelief about the whole Edward Snowden phenomenon. And uh, if there are any of you out there, especially new listeners, because we do have new listeners coming in all the time, especially due to the new affiliation that we have recently, if you haven't heard those interviews, let me urge you to go back through the archive at TMR and listen to those. It's very easy to do. I suggest uh, going to the Topics tab, where you'll find it organised there. Uh, Tom is a UK-based writer, researcher, filmmaker and podcaster, creator of the excellent podcast Clandestime, which I highly recommend people to check out. He specializes in the study of terrorism, the security services, declassified history, the philosophy and politics of fear, and particularly how all of that relates to the film and entertainment industries. Uh, Tom is also a proud Yorkshireman, and I say something like this each time he comes on, somebody nevertheless who is able to condescend to speak to people like me who live in Lancashire. So uh, thank you very much, Tom, for coming on again. <laughs> Thanks for having me again. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed it when we've spoken before. Our previous two conversations were great. They were a lot of fun. They were very interesting and I think provocative conversations. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's good to be talking to you again. Well, thanks very much. Um, you know, we're going to go into the subject before too long, but I did actually want to ask you something. I was reading your Facebook page a few weeks ago and somebody asked you a strange question. I thought, ah, I've got to ask him that. So is it true, Tom, that you wear pyjamas and eat muffins in bed? No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, okay. that was a total mischaracterization. I don't know where they got that from. That's, it was that, rather that's odd. Just, yeah. Maybe it's... People have, not to put too fine a point on it, but people have certain, I think, expectations and uh, romanticizations of the British. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that person was not from Britain that made that comment. And so I think it's partly that. It's just, you know, conforming to those sorts of stereotypes that people have in their mind of countries they've never been to or people they've never met. And everyone has, you know, to some extent, you know, if I say to you, Japanese people... I'm sure certain images kind of jump into your mind and you think, oh, that's how Japanese yes. people are. And then you think, no, that can't be how all Japanese people are, of course. Mm -hmm. So, you know. But mind you, I don't think I've ever come across the idea of British people eating muffins in bed. <laughs> Have you ever come across that before? No, that was an original one. Credit where it's due. That I didn't see that yeah. one coming. <laughs> <laughs> no. Perhaps it's a particularly Yorkshire stereotype that I don't know about. Maybe, I mean, maybe muffin. I mean, muffin is used to mean different things. Hmm. Some people, by muffin, they don't mean like a, a blueberry muffin or something. They can mean like a sort of toasted, almost like a crumpet. <laughs> So that would make slightly more sense for eating in bed than, you know, like a chocolate chip muffin. That's really not a good thing to be eating in bed. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, people will be pleased to know that we are going to have a sensible conversation at some point um, today. There is another thing I did want to ask you. Is it in fact the case that you do back up everything onto a hard drive and bury it in the middle of a wheat field? Oh, no, 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 no. That was very much a joke. Um, <laughs> Although maybe I should. It sounded like a good idea to me, actually. Well, given all the stuff that I have got on various yeah, hard drives, yeah. I probably should keep an off-site copy of it all somewhere. But no, if the security services are listening, I don't. So you don't? You only have to smash so many hard drives if you want to get rid of everything I've got. But even then, a good half of it, I've probably got paper copies of anyway. Mm. And it's all on my website. 
it would take quite a lot, I think, to destroy. Someone would have to be quite serious. <laughs> but yeah, if someone wanted to kind of completely wipe out my research archive, they'd have to go to quite some effort, though not to a wheat field. No, but it did sound like a good idea. Oh, well. Well, for the sake of those who did not hear those previous conversations, perhaps you could tell people a bit more about what you do at spyculture.com and also what is it that keeps you going, Tom? Um, now, there's an interesting question. What do I do? That's the easy half of that question, isn't it? Um, in essence, I study how big government agencies, and I'm talking important ones like the CIA, the Pentagon, Homeland Security, Ministry of Defense here in the UK how they interact with the entertainment industry, primarily for propaganda purposes, mm. because they say it's mostly about recruitment and retention. You know, they want to get people applying and signing up and they want people to stay in the armed forces and feel good about what they're doing. Particularly, this is what the Pentagon says about why it's involved. But when you peel that back and you start finding the documents and the interviews these people have given occasionally where they've admitted what kind of influence they really have over these films and TV shows and computer games and documentaries in some cases. It's much more politicized to the extent that this is propaganda in no uncertain terms. So it's not just about, you know, who are pro-military, how great are they? It's a lot more subtle than that. It also involves um, like how movies portray friendly governments. They've censored things. The Pentagon has removed things from film scripts about the Iraqi government and the Colombian government and, you know, other governments that at the time they wanted to be on good terms with. So they didn't want a Hollywood movie coming out portraying them really corrupt and vicious and all the rest of it. So, I mean, this is political propaganda. There's no two ways about it. And I think that's something a lot of people don't realize, hmm. probably aren't at all aware of. And for what it's worth, hasn't had the journalistic and academic coverage that it should have had there's been some very 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 good books written on this but there's like a handful maybe half a dozen but you are going most of the time to the primary documents aren't you because you spend a lot of time making all these FOIA requests so you're finding out a lot of the information firsthand uh, a lot of the time yeah mm. um not just through FOIA requests i mean some of the time this comes down to things like reading the original book that a film is based on, then reading the screenplays that are available, then watching the final film and seeing how it developed and at what point the government agency got involved in the development. If you can figure that out, then you can extrapolate from that what changed as a result of these discussions and negotiations with the state. So, yeah, yeah, I file a lot of FOIA requests. I dread to think how many thousands of pages have come back. And I work through this stuff trying to map this out, both historically and more recently, even present day stuff, to try and figure this out, like, where did this come from? How has this developed? Why is this happening? What is the scale of this? What's the mm. scope and the aim of this? Because it's easy to speculate about government involvement in propaganda when you don't have the evidence. So my approach is, well, what evidence can we get? Yeah, yeah. What can we get from them that they can't deny? And that, in fact, no one can really... I suppose theoretically it's possible they could have just faked all of these documents and sent them to me and re <laughs> well, released them to yes. archives and on the other places I get them from. But well, We're getting onto that subject in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose that's possible, but I doubt it. So this is as strong evidence as we can get. So I thought, since no one else is doing this, why not do it? Right. I, I mean, I'd come out of the 7-7 investigation thinking about this as it mm. related to that specifically, but... 
then I thought, well, I know how to do FOIA requests. I know how to build a website. I know how to do most of the things that you need to do in order to build this archive up so that there is actually somewhere a completely free archive where people can go and think, right, I'm interested in what the FBI are doing in filmmaking in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s. There's stuff on there about it. What were the Air Force doing in World War II? They can find it out. What are the CIA doing recently? They can find it out. It's all in one place. So that's essentially what I do and why I do it. Mm. Yeah, and thank you for sharing all that information. A lot of the information you share through your podcasts, don't you? So at least to sort of whet people's appetites, I think, go and look at the other things that you produce on the website as well. But your podcast is called Clandest Time. Excellent podcast. Um, presumably you thought up that title, did you? Oh, no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> right. I'm not that creative. <laughs> no, that was uh, Aaron Franz of uh, theageoftransitions.com, and he also does this uh, comedy podcast I like called Uncle the Podcast, where it's him. And his... <laughs> yes. I heard some of that, actually, because you recommended it. It was very amusing. Yeah, is, he, is he still doing that? Yeah, yeah, they're up to yeah, over right. 50 episodes they've done now. <laughs> right. okay. So, yeah, yeah, he came up with the title, or he came up with a bunch of titles. He suggested a bunch of different ideas, and that was the one I went with. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it does work well. It has a cheesiness to it, but that's fine. And that goes of course with the cheesy theme music now you did tell me the group that was responsible for this was based upon monty norman's bond music theme <laughs> remind us what that group is again oh what uh, who is it uh, it's, it, i think they're called the art of noise <laughs> right well, it, it works very well i like it oh yeah i mean i accept it is totally cheesy but i'm kind of stuck with it now um yeah. i've used <laughs> it for nearly a hundred episodes <laughs> i can't really change it no don't I? please I'd, I'd do get not letters. change I'd... you would yeah, yeah I'd get lots of good I, I would complain for one <laughs> um Okay, well, I suppose we better get on to something sensible. Um, we're going to be talking about this subject that you covered in one of your podcasts several weeks ago, uh, number 92, I think it was, and that's the subject of the false flag exercise theory, which I thought was an excellent show, a very fascinating show. And essentially you argue in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially it seems to me that you argue that this theory does have a basis in reality, in historical reality, but by and large the alternative media doesn't seem to know about that historical reality, and yet at the same time has tended to blow the theory out of all proportion and treat it if it's some kind of default explanation for every terror event that comes along. So although I'm, I'm sure many listeners will have an inkling of what we're going to be talking about, perhaps we'd better start with uh, some basic explanation. So what do you mean by the false flag exercise theory? Um, well, like you just said, I guess I mean the theory, very popular in the alternative media, if you want to call it that, hmm. that when false flag state terrorist attacks are carried out, that they are typically carried out, or one of the signs, one of the proofs, if you like, that an event is a false flag terrorist attack, is that it coincides with some kind of training exercise that in some way duplicates elements of the real event, elements of the real attack. And, you know, there's been uh, half a dozen major terrorist attacks that have kind of lined up in some way with this or someone's given an interview where they said they thought an exercise was going on and so on over the last 15 to 20 years or so. But in studying where this idea comes from and how old it is, how far it goes back, how real it is as well, um, I found it's just so much more complicated than that. I suppose briefly I would distinguish between terrorist attacks prior to 9-11 and terrorist attacks since 9-11. The ones prior to 9-11, most of the ones where someone tried to use the, oh, it was just an exercise, or 
some kind of logic like that, uh, it actually was a state act of terrorism of some sort. Since 9-11, they're all pretty shaky. They're all pretty thin in terms of being explanations or being proofs of government involvement. So right. that's what I'm talking about. And it's curious that you say that a lot of people in the alt media don't know about the genuine instances of this, and yet it's become this default explanation. I wonder where the idea came from, really. Uh, well, it seems to have come from pop culture, and not just pop culture, but state-sponsored pop culture, yeah. which, like I say, just adds a whole layer of complexity and doubt on top of this, is to wonder, <laughs> I suppose, one simple explanation might be, and I am speculating here, that up until 9-11, they actually still used this as a cover and deception tactic in state terror attacks. But since then, they've adapted it for use as a piece of psychological warfare. So it's not cover and deception for the attack itself. It's like a, a different form of cover and deception. So it muddies the waters and gets people looking in the wrong direction. So people who are trying to, people who are inclined, let's say, to doubt that this is just some random act of terror by some fanatics or whatever, and think, could people in the government be behind this? Could a government agency be behind this? For people like that, it does become important, particularly in the internet and post-9-11 age, to feed them some chicken feed, something that gets them running in the wrong direction. Yes. So yes. I suppose basically that's where I'm going with this. Mm. Yeah, now that is a fascinating notion, actually, and I'm going to come back to that later because I've been thinking along these lines, probably under influence from you, about some events, particularly over the last year or so. Um, so you do point to some definite known examples of these kinds of exercises in history connected to events that are in fact talked about in old media circles, but this dimension, as you say, is hardly ever discussed. So this is prior to 9-11, you pinpoint the Bay of Pigs, Operation Northwoods, Operation Gladio, do you want to tell us about any of those and the genuine examples that you've located? So, do you want to start with the Bay of Pigs? What happened there? Well, okay, the Bay of Pigs was the CIA's attempted invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs in southern Cuba in early 1962. Was it April 1962? Um, no, 61. 61. Yeah, <laughs> okay, sure, sure. <laughs> um and essentially what happened is in 59 there was a revolution in Cuba, Castro took over, a number of Cubans, thousands of them, fled to southern Florida. Um, they were Cuban exiles, if you like. They were accepted, I guess, as refugees by the American government, who initially used them very much for propaganda purposes against Castro. But then there was developing this plan of, oh, well, you know, could we somehow stage a, uh, like a fake coup? Hmm. The idea was they would take 1,500 or so of these guys, train them up, arm them up, drop them in boats onto beaches in southern Cuba, they would form an uprising against the government. And then after a couple of days, the American military could come in and say, this is a internal rebellion and it's being repressed by a brutal dictator and we need to go in there and protect them. And this is a humanitarian and democratic thing. Where have we heard that before? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Libya, <Right>. Syria. Yeah. <laughs> sure. um, mm. A familiar pattern, but it, you know, it goes back a long way. Mm. It failed because the army was essentially too poorly trained, too poorly equipped. They just didn't really know what they were doing. There wasn't enough of them. It was never really on the cards. And also there was also this problem with Kennedy. Um, <laughs> right. The Navy put various vessels, um, I'm talking like with aerial capability, with, you know, takeoff capability, 
onto movers into the Caribbean off the coast of Cuba with the idea being that once this was successful, once this had been going on for a few days and they could say this is an internal rebellion, we need to go in there and support them, that they could flip those vessels from being on an exercise status onto being an active status and they could then send in boats and planes and what have you to help and defend the rebels. So the problem was that Kennedy didn't pull the trigger. He refused to give the order. But nonetheless, this is an early example of this, you know, a government doing a false flag covert action. And you could argue a rebellion, a revolution is a terrorist act of kinds and using exercises as a means of cover and deception. Right. So those ships were actually there. Yeah. It wasn't just an idea. They were there on an exercise. And had they been needed, they would have flipped to the real thing. They expected them to. Um, yeah. And this is the problem. All the people on the ships expected yeah, yeah, yeah. this order to come in as well. Right. And they were not very happy about this and not very happy with Kennedy about this. And if you watch Oliver Stone's movie JFK, he does bring this up and say, you know, this is partly the cause of resentment in the CIA and the Defense Department against Kennedy was that he didn't pull the trigger on the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. Um, and you also mention Operation Northwoods, again, very well known, declassified 1997. People can go to the TMR website and actually find the documents there. I mean, there are many places on the net, but if you want to just go to the documents tab, you can read all about it. Um, but what is not so well known is that this was suggested to operate under exercises. Well, some of the ideas, this is the problem. Oh, I thought I thought it was the whole thing. Okay. Well, it was it was sort of a broad tactic, kind of where applicable. Mm. But okay, um, after the Bay of Pigs fails, they do several things. The CIA and DoD do several things. They train a second army or start training a second army with the intention of having a second go at the same kind of operation. <laughs> why they why they thought yeah. it would work better the second time, you know? Um, but at some point along the line, they also think this is a political problem. This is something where, you know, we're not going to be able to get the Kennedy White House to go ahead with this unless they have some kind of overt political excuse for invading Cuba and deposing Castro. So they go to Ed Lansdale. He's like an Air Force intelligence officer who is seconded to the CIA. He's kind of moving around the upper echelons of black operations in several different agencies, to be honest, um, and in quite a lot of different countries, Vietnam, <laughs> Korea, the Philippines, then he's back in the US planning this thing with Cuba. You get the idea. Yes. Ed Lansdale comes up with Operation Northwoods and this is on the memo it's subtitled uh, what is it? Justification for Military Intervention in Cuba and basically it's a series of plans that could be carried out individually or several of them where they would stage false flag events of varying kinds, all sorts of different ideas are suggested under this and use these to frame Cuba, to make Cuba look like they did it. And thus, the Americans, you know, we have to go in there and do something about this. And so you have, uh, like the famous idea that's talked about, um, most people may be familiar with this from uh, Loose Change. They discuss Northwoods quite a lot in the start of the film Loose Change, where they would basically send a plane south of Florida. It would take off, go south. They would send back a radio message saying, we're under attack by Cuban MiGs. The MiGs are shooting at us. The plane then blows up. The remnants crash into the water. And they say, the Cubans did this. The Cubans did this. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> now, where this gets a little complicated is that there was also the idea of switching a plane. 
So they send send up a real plane with real people on it, but undercover identities, pretending they're you know students or something. And during an exercise, <laughs> they would like peel off a plane from the exercise, a drone, switch it with the real one, which would then return like flying low under radar and landed Florida again, and the people would get out and be fine. The drone then assumes the flight path of the original plane, and they blow up that one. <laughs> So you get the idea. They're they're discussing the same sort of thing where we use an exercise. And in this case, they had like um, some planes playing the attack force and some playing the defense force. And it was the attack force that would who were pretending to be Cuban planes in the exercise that would actually go and shoot down the real one. Stuff like this. So you get the idea that exercises as a military cover and deception tactic were very much certainly in this early 60s period around Cuba. This was like standard to them this was a standard practice at that point in time at least it was part of this suggestion are you saying that that was part of the toolkit just because it was suggested well and because they use it with the bay of pigs which was right you know, only a few months well year and a half earlier i can't remember exactly the dates between the two but yeah. um it's about a year i think it was between the northwoods memo and the bay of pigs mm-hmm. and that it's the same people involved you've got lyman lemnitz here you've got ed lansdale these same people were involved in the Bay of Pigs and then involved with this crazy Northwoods plan. And who knows what happened to Northwoods afterwards? Yes, indeed. And of course, uh, Lemnitzer himself then went off to head up or become Supreme Allied Commander of NATO pretty quickly afterwards. And lo and behold, we get some similar kinds of things happening in Europe under Operation Gladio. And uh, we're going to be talking about an incident that did take place under the Belgian arm of Gladio, uh, an incident called the Wielzalm incident, much later in 1984. But going back to the early 1960s, do you think Gladio can be traced back to the influence of Lemnitzer? Probably. Hard to say exactly, but there again, you have to wonder. It's like with the pseudo-gangs idea. Have you come across this with uh, General Frank Pitson? Yeah. I have, actually. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. This was Involved which, in Northern Ireland. Yeah. 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 Um, mm-hmm. But before that, he was involved in uh, the, the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. And this was like a, if you like, a Marxist guerrilla uprising. And Kitson developed this plan to develop pseudo gangs, like pseudo rebel units, completely controlled by British military intelligence. And this originated with basically him and a bunch of other white, blonde-haired soldiers blacking up with shoe polish and going <laughs> running okay. around the jungle. But it developed into, like, you know, they, they, they captured a couple of genuine rebels and turned them into agents and used them to recruit others. And so they would actually have their own Mau Mau units running around, like getting close to the Mau Mau leadership to assassinate them or coaxing other units into an ambush so they could be captured and either prosecuted or maybe they would be flipped and turned into, the, you know, another pseudo-gang. So you get the idea. Mm. Then in the 70s, he comes back and starts working in Northern Ireland, where British military intelligence adopted the exact same tactics. <laughs> without blacking up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, but yeah. without the necessity. <laughs> well, no, no, they had to put on Irish accents, but, you know, it's a bit easier. Mm. Um, and again, this idea actually, I think, originated with Ed Lansdale in the 50s in the Philippines during the Huck Rebellion. So I'm not sure how Kitson and Lansdale connect up, or if they do, but presumably, you know, it's possible they both just develop the same kind of idea at the same time. Hmm. So yeah, the fact that Lemnitzer, after Northwoods, Kennedy, not just for because of Northwoods, but for other reasons, he, at the end of his term, he lets him go and appoints a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Lemnitzer ends up as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces in Europe. 
and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah. It's curious, isn't it, that in 1966, 67, the years of lead in Italy start, the renewed war in Northern Ireland starts, a bunch of other violent rebellions across Europe all seem to start at pretty much the same time, almost like this is the result of some kind of international government policy, like NATO. It does make you wonder. I mean, I, I said this to Daniel Leganza, and I wanted to sort of push him on the point, and he, he would say, well, you can't say for sure, of course, but he was as, just as suspicious as you are because of these connections that were there, and the timing of it as well. No, no, he said the same thing to me in an email when I asked him about right. his, his okay. opinion of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he has to be responsible. I mean, I understand that completely, of course. Um, well, Without the definite evidence, he can't commit himself to it, can he? Well, he said he hadn't seen any, any documents to that effect, mm. which basically means he thinks that, but he hasn't seen any documents to that effect. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, dot, 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 yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with him, and I agree with you on this. It seems to be this is at least in part a result of Lemnitz's influence. And there's probably other people. I mean, we don't know. This is the problem. We don't know who was running NATO at this point in time. Finding out even the names of quite senior officials isn't that easy. Right. NATO are very secretive. And then, of course, we're dealing with a shadow NATO, aren't we? A sort of para-NATO here. So even more difficult to find out anything reliable about that. Yeah, this seems to have been being run, at least according to Gantz's research, this seems to have been being run by a series of clandestine committees within NATO that, like, no one outside of the committees really knew who they were or what they were doing. <laughs> so I don't, we can't, like, blame the whole, you know, every you know, the secretary who works in NATO for Opera Operation Gladio, but, you know, we don't know the names of the people on those committees, and it's ridiculous at this point in time that we don't know that. I mean, at least with the British in Northern Ireland, we know some of the people who were involved in that. And some of them have been questioned in inquiries. And it turns out, yes, they were carrying out terrorist attacks. And yes, they were training and equipping terrorists. And yes, they were infiltrating the IRA at the highest levels and so on and so forth. We know this now. Um, and Gladio is basically the same thing, but over the whole of Western Europe, that almost everywhere where you find some kind of violent or even just radical political faction, they were infiltrated, they were either led into some kind of legal ambush and chucked in prison, or they were flipped and turned into NATO assets for use in creating terrorist attacks and kidnapping people, assassinating people, all kinds of mayhem, all kinds of, of horror, all kinds of crime, you know? Mm. Um, I think we should never lose sight of that, that these are actually criminal acts in Absolutely. no uncertain terms. Absolutely, so, yeah. I think, I mean, coming um, back to the specifically to the exercises question, there was this incident again. I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it Vilsam or Vilsam incident in Belgium, 1980s? Oh, you tell you tell me. Uh, I'm guessing it. Vilsam. Vilsam. Okay, I'll go with that because I don't know any better. Um, <laughs> so this is the 1980s. Is it a squad of U.S. Marines flown into Belgium from London? They parachute in and they're met by the Stay Behind unit in Belgium with this wonderful title SDRA8. And what they have to do is under the cover of some kind of exercise going on. Is that right? Yes, there was the NATO Ursling exercise, I think it's called. <laughs> yes, another one, Ursling, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> take your best yep. guess at how you pronounce these words, but um, don't, don't hold us responsible for not being able. <laughs> sure. um, and, and this exercise, again, it was one where you have an attack team and a defense team. And that part of this exercise seemed to involve an attack on a, um, a gendarmerie barracks. They're like armed police. Yeah. 
they're not quite military, not quite ordinary everyday police officers. They're somewhere in between. Um, this was called off <laughs> partly because when this group of Marines landed and met up with this Gladio stay behind unit, SDRA8, I mean, yeah, like, doesn't tell you anything, <laughs> does it? They could be anyone. No. Um, it's like, who, who, who are they? The title doesn't tell you anything. To anyone who's not in the loop and not part of that, they haven't got a clue what those people are up to. Um, so they meet up with them, and for, I think it's like two or three weeks, they're running around the Belgian countryside, causing all sorts of trouble. They, like, throw grenades at government buildings. They're shooting at police stations. And this is all supposed to be part of this NATO exercise. But it seems because of the kind of, like, there was an uproar about this. There's people saying, look, there's obviously some kind of criminal gang roaming around causing trouble. So it seems this planned part of the exercise attack on the gendarmerie barracks never actually was supposed to go ahead. But the unit does it anyway. And somebody dies from it, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They kill, mm. you know, one officer. I mean, okay, mm. it's only one person. They still killed them. They still killed them. Exactly. Something. Um, it's not the worst kind of gladio attack, but it's an important one because weapons from that barracks later turn up in the hands of, or at least in the in the residences, we should say, of people uh, accused of being communist radicals in Belgium. Hmm. So what, they stole them from there and then planted them on them, gave them to them? We don't know, but you get the idea that this is, again, it's a military exercise being used for cover and deception purposes. And the result of this is state terrorism. And whether that terrorism is, you know, actually killing people and blowing stuff up, or whether that terrorism is fitting up otherwise innocent people and throwing them in prison for the rest of their lives. I mean, okay, there is a distinction there, but I think you should include both of those under the rubric of state terrorism. So yeah, Absolutely, yeah. So all these examples do involve exercises, so those are a matter of historic record. But your point in the podcast is that many events that have taken place since 9-11 in particular, you, you're rather dubious about this connection. So obviously you, you talk about 9-11, also 7-7, which you've done a lot of work on, and Boston Marathon, the Paris attacks, you mentioned those, and some other things as well. So, I mean, what's your problem with the 9-11 situation? Because there were, well, they're not extensive military exercises going on that day. And it seems to me reasonable that people are very suspicious that, you know, those could have been used for cover. Why not? Um, I suppose it's not that they couldn't have been. It's more that, that news of these exercises came out quite quickly. Um, that's one thing that always makes me wonder why would something so critical come out so fast um could be wrong on that point hmm. it's more just that no one's come up with like a straightforward explanation of how this works i mean i get it the military have lied about what they were doing on the morning of 9-11 i'm not disputing that for a moment no okay um they've told three completely contradictory stories about that all of which don't make a lot of sense don't cohere with other known facts or at least reports from people who were involved mm. i get it i get why people are so suspicious and i get why they're looking at those exercises and saying yeah. okay if there was some kind of uh, drone or plane switch or something like that you know something reminiscent of northwoods how you know having an exercise with actual planes in the sky possibly planes that are being chased around by fighter jets who are being distracted by this exercise rather than actually intercepting the real dangerous planes I get it. As a hypothesis, I don't think there's anything fundamentally kind of incoherent or stupid about that. Mm. 
I've just never heard anyone put any real pieces together with any of the actual evidence that we have, you know, the testimony from various people. Because this is the problem that the early testimony to the 9-11 Commission told one story and later testimony and the NORAD tapes that they also presented to the 9-11 Commission like a year later tell another story. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I just wonder what kind of evidence you're looking for. I mean, because if you go over to the History Commons, the exercises rundown that they've got there, and there are lots of examples of people being distracted and thinking, the wrong, you know, the, the, oh, this is just an input coming in and not knowing actually what's going on and mistaking one thing for another. So it does seem to me anyway that these exercises could have, well, there's evidence there that it did in fact cause trouble. So why not think that's very, very possible that it was anticipated that that would have that effect and was used for that purpose? I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's impossible. I guess I'm saying, yeah. I mean, I've seen that the, the timeline you're talking about and I've seen yeah. the statements you're talking about. Most of those seem right. to come from relatively low-level people. Mm. I've not come across any statements by, like, the the guy at Needs, the guy in charge of the Northeast Air Defense Sector, who is absolutely slap-bang in the middle of or whatever was going on that morning. He never said anything like that. And also... They never use this as an excuse. That's the other thing, is that, okay, word of these exercises leaks out. Maybe that's entirely possible and the Pentagon couldn't stop it. But why not then say, yeah, I mean, it was just a horrible coincidence and this might have been part of the reason why we, we couldn't stop this. If you're going to use it for cover and deception, who was being deceived? I know, Yeah, I know what you mean. But I don't see why that precludes... You're going to have to be careful how you use your words. The reasonableness of thinking that it could just have been used in order to create trouble. Why need it be used in its excuse as well? Um, I suppose also because the historical examples we have, these exercises weren't being used as cover and deception within the military itself, strictly. They were more being used as cover and deception towards the target, like Cuba. In the, in the 60s cases. I'm not saying it's, again, at all unlikely or <laughs> implausible that they could have taken that same idea and said, okay, with this sort of operation, where you've got potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people sat at both civilian and military radar stations, <laughs> you know, most of them aren't going to be in on this, that they might have come up with that as a way of deceiving those hundreds, if not thousands of people or at least confusing them, so that those people didn't know what had happened. Mm -hmm. Maybe they had their suspicions. In fact, it seems quite a few of them did. Um, but they don't say anything, or they don't say anything all that early on, because they don't really know. I can see that happening. It's not that I think it's all that implausible. It's more, I guess... Just like I say, I've never heard a, a, a straightforward account of how that actually works based on the available evidence. Mm. If someone produced it, I'd happily take a look at it and offer, offer my opinion okay. as to sort of how realistic I think it is. Um, All right. But so you do agree then that it could be part of a kind of cumulative case of suspicion generally? Um, I mean, you've, you've already said you think it's not unreasonable, so presumably you would agree with that statement. <laughs> Yeah, but I just don't put all that much faith in this is suspicious. I mean, for example, with me, with when it comes to 9-11, I'm much more concerned with things like, why is it that when two of these supposed hijackers attend a very high-level Al-Qaeda summit meeting in Malaysia in, I think it was January of 2000, 
The CIA monitor this meeting. They know that these two are on the way to the United States, having just left this meeting, whatever this meeting is supposed to be about. And yet they don't tell the FBI and they deliberately don't tell the FBI. And they later circulate a memo within the CIA saying that they have told the FBI, thus discouraging anyone else from telling the FBI. And the FBI, as a result, don't track these two when they otherwise would have. Mm -hmm. Things like that, where you can demonstrate a very straightforward, linear, (laughs) um, documented case of them doing something deliberately, Mm. that, I think, Uh, is is a much better basis for making an argument about 9-11 than this mm. is suspicious and this is suspicious and this is suspicious and this is suspicious. If all you're trying to do is persuade someone to ask some questions, then cumulative suspicion is all right. If you're actually trying to build an argument... It doesn't really get you anywhere. It just means you've got a load of suspicions and questions. You see what I mean? I see what you mean. I just wonder, in the podcast that you presented anyway, that perhaps you were too dismissive of that, because I do think cumulative suspicion does actually have a power. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of an intuitionist myself, and I think that can be a guide to us making judgments, because it's very difficult to establish proofs for all sorts of things. So you know, if we can be guided along a particular pathway, begin to see something in a certain kind of way, maybe that will help us in making judgments about the balance of probabilities. In this case, what we think most probably happened that day. So I think it has its place. Um, so, you know, I was just uh, picking at you a little for that one because I thought perhaps you overstated it in the <laughs> in the uh, in the podcast. Um, okay, let's move on. The one which I think uh, is much clearer, anyway, is the seven seven London bombings. Obviously, this is your speciality here, and, and you have a lot of criticism of those who make too much of the Peter Power exercise that was going on. Now we have talked about this before, but will you please remind us of what this exercise was and why you disagree with people's interpretation of the significance of that exercise? Sure. Well, I mean, on the afternoon and in the evening of the 7-7 bombings, the London bombings in July 2005, this management consultant, Peter Power, he goes on first BBC radio and then on ITV News. And actually, I think in the following days, he went on some Canadian TV channel. um, And he talks about that morning we were running an exercise based around pretty much the same scenario as really happened. And that's kind of the only evidence that anyone really has is this guy's say-so, and this guy's saying so very early on. Mm. Again, almost as though this was a planned distraction. I mean, from a practical point of view, running a counter-terrorism training exercise, like if you were running a full-scale one with, like, boots on the ground and people, you know, pretending to rescue people from a burnt-out carriage or something, wouldn't be all that much help in planting a few bombs on a few trains. I mean, presumably, if they planted bombs on those trains and just fitted up these four guys that they said did it, um, these four young Muslims, three of which were from Yorkshire... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whom you did not um, know would, personally, I might add. No, 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 not, ne- ne- <laughs> never met any of them, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> but, although, ironically enough, my cousin's uh, husband whatever relative that would make him to me, um, went to school with one of them, went to primary school oh, with wow. one of them. But I only found this out like years uh, later and they didn't, they didn't meet until years <laughs> after the bombings or anything. But just, you know, one of those weird coincidences. Um, I think you might be hearing more of that now you reveal that. <laughs> oh, well. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so was, was it actually the same tube stations that was in this? I mean, it was, uh, it was all hypothetical, wasn't it? it? There was no actual physical planning it was just all done on powerpoints or something 
Well, later on, he clarified this. And if you go through his original interviews, he doesn't really say anything that contradicts his later clarification um, or not in terms of whether this was a real boots on the ground exercise or just some desktop PowerPoint thing. Mm. But the way he tells it later to the BBC's conspiracy files is, yeah, he was sat down with a group of like the, the crisis management team for this company. And he went through a PowerPoint presentation saying, okay, the scenario is this. There are multiple bombings in London around these tube stations. And I think, depending on how you calculate it, two or three maybe of the real events, two of the bombings on the on the underground sort of fit with essentially the scenario that he has on these PowerPoint slides. So it wasn't exactly the same then? It was only a subset of it that was the same? No, and there was, mm. and there was no bombing on a bus. Um, was it precisely the same time? <laughs> Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> put you on the spot. You are. It was pretty close. Spot, pretty, yeah. pretty close. Anyway. Well, I mean, it was that morning, and it's like these mm. these bombings happened on the tube at eight fifty. I think they said their exercise actually started at nine, but you know, it's kind of close enough. I mean, maybe they started at five to nine. Who knows? Mm. But like I say, Peter Power claims, and I haven't seen anything directly contradicting this that this was just a PowerPoint presentation, and that it was just for some you know, small group of managers at this company in an office somewhere. Okay. It wasn't until much later we found out that it was uh, Reed Elsevier, the publishing company that was the actual client. But I raised the possibility in my second documentary and in my book that this might have been done deliberately, that if you were going to carry out, if people within MI5, who would be my primary suspects, if they were going to carry out this sort of attack... Why not incorporate something that in the years after 9-11 has become this big talking point, this big focal point among people who suspect the government of terrorism? Why not incorporate some of that into the attack? Um, And there again, like with 9-11, I would argue the much, much better case to be made with 7-7 has got nothing to do with Peter Power and is all about what on earth were MI5 up to when they were trailing these guys for like four years in various ways, four years before these bombings. And each time, like with with the CIA and the FBI, you get these mysterious failings, these mysterious, you know, they don't share information or information isn't analyzed properly, blah, blah, blah. Mm. That is a much more incriminating pattern to me. Which we see continuing as well, don't we, with these modern cases? Oh, yeah. I mean, what is the case that you have read and heard that is actually being made with respect to this Peter Power exercise anyway. Um, I mean, you've, you've made the case that you've just made there, but what do other people, what's the significance that they're claiming for this? Difficult to say. Um, I mean, people have argued that the four alleged bombers, these four young Muslims, were, what, recruited by Peter Power, and they thought they were just going there as part of a training exercise. No one's come up with the slightest evidence of that. Mm. It's been hypothesized, but... I mean, who knows? Maybe they, I guess it's possible, but... It's heck of a stretch, isn't it, <laughs> from what's actually well, there? Well, it's just basically, you know, we've got these four guys here that are blamed. We've got this thing that's supposedly an exercise. Why not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, yeah. They just seem to slap the two together with no rhyme or real reason to it. And no one is suggesting, for example, with 9-11, that the 19 supposed hijackers thought they were taking part in a military exercise. So where does this idea come from? It's not like part of the real history of this. No, I mean, the whole sort of vigilant guardian, um, global guardian business, completely different scenario, isn't it? Although it involves exercises, it's not, it wouldn't operate in the same way at all. No, 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 because for the two to be a parallel, for example, 
basically you'd have to have your four suicide bombers taking as, as part of an exercise, I guess, phoning in a warning, just like in effect when these planes were hijacked, you know, heard things over the radio saying, we have some planes, we're taking over some planes. They would have to have them phoning in a warning to the police, say 45 minutes before they actually blow themselves up, while the police are in the middle of an exercise where they've got to track down suicide bombers. No one is saying that happened on 7-7. So it's not the same scenario as on 9-11. Yeah, so, so the idea really is it's just this exercise meme that's out there. But the different examples that are brought out don't necessarily relate to each other at all. It's just the meme doing its its dirty work out there on, in internet space, essentially. Yeah, it's just the word exercise or drill or rehearsal mm. or simulation. Or, and particularly with the word simulation, because people have gone kind of, they've taken this to the nth degree and said, this isn't actually a terrorist attack. This is all just simulated as part of an exercise and no one really died. That's also, it started out as a very small part of the 9-11 thing, it got a little bit bigger with 7-7 by the time of Boston, it's almost become the default explanation. Right. And it's all, again, built on this notion that, oh, exercise means this. We heard the word exercise, must mean all this. Yeah. But there were, again, there was an exercise going mm. on, was there not, at Boston? What was that guy's name? Stevenson? Somebody Stevenson who was, actually did give an interview saying that there was a drill taking place. But from your description, I don't quite understand how that drill is supposed to relate to what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, what we have again is one guy, and this is again the, the problem, we only have one person, seemingly credible, as far as I can tell, from I think he gave multiple interviews and basically says the same thing across each interview. He's pretty consistent. As far as I can tell, he's not obviously lying. He says he was, he was running in the marathon, which he was. Um, says that at the start of the race, near the athlete's village, or when they're, you know, being rounded up, sort of in a preparation area before the race starts, he said he saw some dogs, possibly sniffer dogs, bomb sniffer dogs going around and heard a announcement. Uh, it seemed to be like on a PA system that don't worry about the dogs, this is just some bomb training exercise or just a, a, an exercise of some kind. Okay. Right, so this is at the beginning that's the problem. Yeah, okay. That mm-hmm. <laughs> right. top, yeah. like went over 20 miles away at the finish line. So, okay, let's say everything this guy said is completely true. How does that relate? What's the relevance? Yeah, exactly. I don't get that. Although his wife apparently said that there were bomb-sniffing dogs at the finish line. but That in itself wouldn't be strange, would no, it? No, not really. And, you know, you look at the pictures and the footage from Boston that day. They had, like, spotters, people with binoculars... On rooftops, they had people running around in uniforms who were part of some, like, biochemical warfare unit. They had, there was serious security in Boston that day, which, of course, casts massive doubt on the notion that two guys just walked up with backpacks, plunked them down and blew them up. Um, right, sure, yeah. Um, Mind you, that's, that's actually all you need, isn't it? All you need is one person to surreptitiously leave a device somewhere you don't need a, a massive operation. I don't see how that operation, the hypothesized connection, even works. It doesn't. Why would you even, I mean, why, why would you risk it? Why, <laughs> if you're going to catch a black operation, why involve people that are messing around with sniffer dogs 25 miles away? Hmm. There's absolutely no reason to do that. The only reason to do that is, again, maybe to sow a little seed of distraction. Let's send some guys with sniffer dogs. They don't, I mean, as far as they know, they're just doing some sniffer dog exercise. Maybe get them to make an announcement so a few people hear it and, you know, we tell them. It's so we don't want to worry people. 
So they go and tell people. Maybe 500 people hear that announcement. One of them actually gets interviewed on the news. Suddenly, the alternative media has figured out the Boston bombings. Right. So you're suggesting there it's a possibility that, that was actually part of some kind of operation was to give a tip that there would be some device, but give the wrong location. And this then creates all this confusion that we're now responding to. Or not even a tip. You actually just tell the guys, the bomb squad, go and take the dogs for a, a quick, like an exercise, a quick run around the athlete's village. And, you know, if anyone asks or if anyone looks worried, just make an announcement and say, don't worry, it's just an exercise. Yeah, that's all, that's all the people on the ground have to know. They're not mm. part of some bombing operation. As far as they know, they're just taking the dogs out for a run. So, but as a result, yeah. so this idea, it gets picked up somewhere. And suddenly people think this is the crucial piece of evidence in solving all of this. Whereas, you know, I look at things like, again, like, hang on, Russian intelligence warned the FBI about these two guys ahead of time, like quite a while ahead of time. And we know that they were to some extent watching them. One of them appears to have been CIA, perhaps. Um, I'd certainly think that's a much more fruitful line of inquiry yeah. is who were the Zarnayev brothers? Yes. What were their connections with the intelligence services? What did the intelligence services know and do about them? That's much more important to me than some bomb-sniffing dog. Well, I agree with you, but it takes more work, doesn't it, Tom? That's the problem. You know, if you can just say, ah, oh, <laughs> oh, this is an exercise. You've, you've got the whole thing sorted. You don't need to look into any FOIA requests, for heaven's sake. You don't have to bother with that. You've just got it all buttoned up in one go. I guess that's the appeal. Um, yeah, but why is that the appeal? And I guess this brings us into the third element of this, which is the Hollywood element. Mm. People expect simple, dramatic, clear stories that are resolved quickly so within a few hours <laughs> within a few hours of a news event it's all wrapped up because that's how it works in a movie or in a tv show everything's fine by the end of the episode um yes. it's you know it's short yeah. attention span theater but it the effect it has is it gives everyone a really short attention span and as a result the notion of how would you actually go about doing that sort of crime and what would be necessary in order to do it, and not just do it, but set up these people, whether they actually planted the bombs or not, you've still got to set them up. That's what you would actually have to go through, and you're not going to get that within a few hours of bombs going off. You're just not. It's never happened. It never will. So, mm, sure. yeah, I mean, I know I have the patience for this, and I, I have the talent for it. I'm good at this sort of research. I'm very, very good at paper trail kind of research. And I get that it's not easy and straightforward, but I do wish people had a patience for something a bit more than what we have now. Cause or, or at least the patience to listen to people like you who are actually doing the work. Not everybody's got the, the skills and indeed the time to do such things. Well, why don't they choose to listen to people who do in fact have, have the skills and, and the time to do such things instead of those who are just opinionating when they're quite ignorant about it? Well, one of the reasons is that I'm not on YouTube anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Why was that? Was that uh, copyright strikes, was it? Oh, endless copyright strikes and problems with that. Mm. And I just I got sick of YouTube. I got, mm, Some people, that. it works for them, but there's an awful lot of people. The sorts of people who write comments on YouTube are usually nitpickers <laughs> and complainers, yes. and the whole thing can get a bit frustrating and depressing. And a combination of all those factors, I just thought, look, just... So I shed a few listeners. I'll hopefully most of them will come with me or I'll win some new ones that in in their place or whatever. 
just go over to a platform where I've got creative freedom and where it isn't full of people who are just looking to have a go at someone. Yeah, yeah. Quite, you um, don't want them anyway. What's the point? Yes, yes. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm always uh, removing comments, actually, because <laughs> especially when they're you know abusive and uh, or even anti-Semitic and the like. So I just just remove those comments. Of course, I've been uh, told that therefore I'm against free speech, but then it's my YouTube channel, so I can do what I like. Can't I? I mean, it's my freedom to publish what I like. <laughs> well, there is that. There is also you're not opposed to free speech. You're opposed to people making abusive and racist comments on your YouTube channel. If they're going to go and make them on someone else's YouTube channel, there's not an awful lot you're going to do about that. No, exactly. And they can they can set up their own YouTube yeah, yeah. channel and make as many comments as they like. Yes, you're not I'm taking away their right to do anything. You're just no, no, no. saying you're not yes. doing it here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for your support there, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> can we go back to this idea then of the exercise going on at the time of a false flag event? Uh, the idea being that somehow this might give the authorities plausible deniability, you know, so somebody gets wise to the fact, I don't know, some soldier, security guard is planting something, and so the authorities can use the excuse of a drill to say, oh, well, don't worry, it was just an exercise. Mm -hmm. um, but you say that kind of approach doesn't work in practice, and you point to the example of the apartment bombings in russia in the late 1990s do you want to tell us briefly what happened there and how they sort of mm -hmm. disconfirm this as a, as a sensible way of doing things yeah in uh, august september 1999 just as putin is finally kind of cementing his position at the top of the russian government there are a string of bombings in various cities including moscow in big apartment blocks so they kill dozens and dozens of people they're really you know horrific events mm. and these are used as an excuse to go and bomb the hell out of Chechnya again. These are blamed on Chechen rebels. We've got to go and have another war against Chechnya and, you know, beat them into submission. The problem is the Ryazan incident. And this is where several sacks of explosive were found in a basement in an apartment building in Ryazan, another Russian town. And the police are called in and the authorities are called in and everyone believes this bombing has been stopped. Everyone says these are real explosives. You know, someone was evidently trying to blow up this building and isn't it great that someone discovered this and called it in and that it stopped. The problem is, in the meantime, they've arrested two people who say they flash FSB, Russian intelligence, identity cards, and they say, no, these were fake explosives. This was all just an exercise to test readiness or test response times or something. You then get this massive confusion where the authorities are saying, oh, they're real explosives. We tested them. We found out they were hexogen. And then people say, oh, no, 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 they weren't. They were just sacks of flour or sugar or something. I think at some point Putin actually says, no, they were real explosives. <laughs> OK. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm not quite sure whether Putin was in on this or whether he, being an ex-KGB guy, was just trying to confuse things even further. <laughs> right. um, so obviously the suspicion comes out, hang on. Is it the FSB who've been blowing up the apartment buildings and not the Chechens? And this ends up in a magnificent confrontation on TV between Russian government officials and a lot of very angry Russians yeah. who basically don't believe a word he's saying. And if you watch the documentary, uh, is it called Blowing Up Russia? It is, or Assassinating Russia, one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's been out under it, both titles, and you can find this for free online. It's an excellent documentary, isn't it? It's brilliant, brilliant documentary, and they really do, mm. you know, they, they use a lot of this TV confrontation in that. And it is clear that this guy is just lying through his teeth. 
and it's, it's not it's and it's not working they're not buying this oh we let them go because they said it was an exercise and we thought it was just an exercise and it didn't work yeah and then they bring some package on don't they saying inside this package is whatever it was sugar or <laughs> i don't know what it is it doesn't prove yeah. anything whatsoever it's a curious thing to do no no it's a, yeah, it's a, yeah yeah it's a bit like colin powell with the like vial of sugar at the un building saying this is this is rice in they're making you know the al-qaeda in iraq are making rice in and they're going to kill us all um it's like hang on um <laughs> so you've got proof inside this brown paper bag right <laughs> okay thank you very much yeah that QED. well and, mm. and and particularly with colin powell what he took a vial of poison into the un yeah quite <laughs> really yeah Come on, no, no he didn't that was flat and not and, and nobody yeah. left presumably <laughs> <laughs> um no no th- this just demonstrates this is one of two examples i cite in the podcast of how this excuse was used and it just didn't work people didn't buy it it didn't follow through um it didn't have the desired result and the other example is somewhat complex but basically it revolves around a group of high military officers and other high political figures in turkey planning some kind of coup against the government that would involve false flag terrorist attacks among other things various tactics to sort of stir up trouble and create a revolutionary atmosphere in which they would then you know carry out their coup when they got caught they said oh no these were just planning documents for an exercise you know the idea of blowing up a plane and blaming on whoever oh no no no, that was just something we sort of came up with as an abstract scenario for a again a sort of seminar training seminar or something and it didn't work. I mean, they ended up in prison. They ended up convincing no one, or at least convincing no one in the prosecution and not an awful lot of the public. And they were thrown in jail. Although that has now all been reversed because it seems that at least some of these documents were faked because some of them, if you look at like the digital hallmarks, the metadata, they were actually created after these people were arrested. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. yeah. Which means they weren't part of the coup plot. Now, it seems there probably was a coup plot, but that at the same time, the government used it to crack down and arrest a whole bunch of people who probably weren't actually guilty of anything. But there again, you just see how things have got more sophisticated since the 1960s. People are, they have access to more information. People are, for what it's worth, generally more skeptical of their governments. You see this in, you know, ratings, every poll that people have is, you know, there's less people engaged in politics, there's less people believing what politicians say. It's a time when people don't kind of just buy this stuff anymore. And so the notion that you could use (laughs) the it was just a training exercise excuse in such a flippant way and such a kind of superficial way. Yes. I just don't, don't don't think it holds water anymore. I think if they are using that idea still as part of covert operations, they're doing it in a much more cunning way than right. that. Right. So you think they're actually responding to this sort of lack of deference and cynicism and the like on the part of the public, and so they're going for this sort of blurring, confusing the media coverage approach instead, using exercises? Well, that's part of the tapestry, yeah. That if you're going to do this, just having one pat excuse and that's your official story and that's what you stick to, that doesn't work anymore. I mean, even just more generally, whatever the content of that is, it doesn't really seem to work. So you have to now take this more postmodern, three-dimensional approach where you're just, you make everything grey and blurry and just keep repeating the same, like, five memes. You know, like with 7-7, it's just suicide bombers, suicide bombers, suicide bombers. All the other details really blurry and contradictory and confusing. <laughs> no one can make mm-hmm. sense of them. But as long as people yeah. believe it was suicide bombers, that's all they care about. 
the rest of it, they can be as contradictory and suspicious as they like. Yeah, I mean, it always amazes me that people don't seem to think that the intelligence services could be several steps ahead of us. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're not stupid people. Some of them genuinely are, but yeah, some of them, the sorts of people who would be carrying out these sorts of crimes probably aren't. I mean, I was thinking along, I think I mentioned at the top of the interview that I had something in mind. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about it. I was thinking along similar lines with some of the videos that were coming out about the Orlando nightclub shooting back in June. Now, I'm not making any comment about the event itself, but there were some very weird videos that apparently showed small groups of people carrying supposed victims of the shooting in the wrong direction towards the Pulse nightclub instead of away, which, of course, is what you'd expect. Um, and then in one of the videos, it's a bit weird because it's kind of almost off-camera, sort of half-off-camera, so it's difficult to be absolutely definite about it, but it looks like this group of people stops, um, they apparently put the injured person down on the ground, and one of the people who's carrying gives the thumbs up to the camera, you know, as if to say, oh, this is a job well done. So that, <laughs> there's something very odd going on there. But the claim was made all over YouTube, you know, this is 100% proof that the whole thing is fake, nobody died, etc., etc., and, you know, the whole thing that was presented, they didn't make sense to me because, I mean, I don't understand what sense it would make for that video, you know, from the point of view of any authority that was you know, allegedly trying to deceive everybody. Why would they make a video of these people going in the wrong direction? You know, you know it says to everybody, this is a staged event. So why would you do that? It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense for the authorities to do it, no. no or, exactly. who, or whoever and, might be buying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, unless, like what you're saying here, it could be done by the... In, it, I'm just saying, I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just thinking mm. it could be done for the opposite reason, in order to confuse the media and send people up a cul-de-sac. Um, that never seems to be suggested. It's always, oh, look, here's the evidence, or oh, it's all fake, even when that doesn't make sense. Um, again, this is partly just the function of short attention span culture. Mm. It's also, I mean, does it not occur to people, what if someone else, completely independently was trying to fake some footage so they could sell it to the news organizations and make some money? Yeah. What if a news organization was just lazy and faking some footage to stick in as their B-roll as part of their, you know? Yeah, I noticed actually that the video was coming out from Russia Today, or uh, Rutley. Oh, yeah. So I thought, well, could they be doing it for propaganda purposes themselves? I don't know. I'm not saying they are, but why not? Why couldn't that be an alternative explanation? <laughs> well, certainly I can see some advantage from the Russian government's point of view in doing that sort of thing. Um, and you do have to bear in mind, not that I'm in any way downplaying the criminality of the British or American intelligence services, but the Russian intelligence services are incredibly clever. Um, everything I know about their, their history just strikes me as they really do think several steps ahead of pretty much anyone else. Um, and in this case, you've got to look at things like one of the things that Putin's government did was, or at least his propaganda guy did, was create a whole series of different groups and movements and fund them and organize them into existence, some of which were pro-Putin and pro-government and some of which were anti. So you have this, you know, relatively confusing political landscape and even more confusing political landscape. Then he goes and tells everyone that he's doing this. Right. So everyone doesn't know whether to trust the opposition groups anymore or the pro-government right. groups anymore and they sort of become more confused and apathetic and just go with yeah. the status quo oh well we might as well stick with putin confusion as a way of kind of like eradicating dissent 
and that's possibly the best thing you can do with dissenters um, is not necessarily get them fighting one another is just to confuse them <laughs> okay. think about it what drives most dissenters what drives people like me and you is i guess deep down a kind of moral conviction that what they're doing is wrong and also an indignation at being lied to when it's obvious to you i find that particularly irksome i have to say yeah me too i get pretty mm. when i know that governments are lying um yes and and media it's a mixture just... of the two of course yeah it's also the moral dimension as well but one feeds into the other and it just makes me extremely cross and thus motivates you to at least try and do something yeah or at least make your dissent clear if mm. nothing else yeah. to, to do that yeah so the best thing they can do to people like us is make us uncertain of ourselves because right now both me and you are relatively certain of this we're relatively certain that people within the government are committing serious crimes they are propagandizing the mass population. They are deceiving people on a huge scale. Yeah. So if they can convince us that actually maybe that isn't true or we just can't tell whether that's true and when that's true, it takes away that indignation. It takes away that motivation to do something about it. And when you take away people's motivation, then it doesn't really matter sure. what they then go and do because they're going to be doing it in a sort of half-assed, confused way anyway that won't amount to anything. Yes, yes. Um, sort of forces people then into the, the wackiness, doesn't it? You, know, you, you used to get associated with the wacky end of things. Otherwise, you have to be quiet. If you haven't got anything to go on, then what can you do but make wacky assertions? <laughs> mm, mm. And, and that doesn't harm the government at all. Yeah. They don't care if a million people are watching some crazy YouTube or Facebook video saying a load of nonsense. makes no difference to them no. at all. So. No, and because this comes back then to this business about the state-sponsored entertainment role in this you say that the authorities are not bothered by a lot of this stuff and so they're quite open about putting it into films and tv programs and the like do you want to tell us a little bit more about that um particularly with regard to this false flag exercise meme it's embedded there in the media it's either put there deliberately or it's tolerated um they could take it out but they don't take it out um you've got a lot of examples based presumably on your FOIA requests of establishment involvement uh, military involvement, intelligence involvement in films and the like. Um, could you tell us just a few examples of that and how it relates to this false flag exercise meme? Well, yeah, I mean, going all the way back to the 1960s, where we started with the real timeline of covert operations using exercises for cover and deception, you have the film Seven Days in May, which is where a uh, coup faction, a kind of hard-right coup faction within the US government decide to stage a coup during some kind of nuclear missile training exercise and they use that as their means of compartmentalizing the coup plot through the governmental mechanism and that film was actually rejected by the Pentagon but then the producers managed to sneak their way and persuade the captain of a, a naval vessel a big navy boat to let them on to do a bit of filming but he shouldn't really have done that it should have actually gone through the formal process which had already been denied <laughs> Um, but when you get on to the more recent ones, like Hunt for Red October has this kind of idea in it of a, you know, using a training exercise as a means to do something covert. You have the same kind of thing happening in which James Bond film is it? It's one of the Timothy Dalton ones, but I can't remember which one it is. Offered. Um, Living Daylights. Living Daylights. Like yeah. Um, there's a scene at the beginning of that on the Rock of Gibraltar yeah. where, yes, I remember the, it, yes. where there is some kind of like NATO exercise. And again, it's where they've got to kind of they've got an attack team and a defense team and they've got to try and the attack team have got to try and, you know, scale the mountain and get inside the base. And this is used by some criminal element as a way of getting inside this and 
assassinating several of these covert operatives, several of these soldiers, special forces soldiers, what have you, that are in the exercise. There again, could have been removed, wasn't. Hunt for Red October, that was full DOD cooperation, could have removed that idea, didn't. Mm. And wasn't the uh, Living Daylights, wasn't that actually on MOD land? Was it? Yeah, 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 that whole thing is shot on MOD property. Right. Um, that's the extent to which they were involved in that scene. So, mm. the, you know, they'll have read the script, mm. they'll have seen what was going on, they didn't yeah, have a problem course, with yeah. it. Um, mm. Same kind of idea turns up in Enemy of the State and in episodes of The Agency. And actually a similar kind of idea, I didn't get into this in the podcast, but a similar sort of idea appears in the film The Recruit, the Al Pacino, Colin Farrell CIA thriller. And all of these, Enemy of the State, The Recruit and The Agency, all produced in cooperation with the CIA fully with their entertainment liaison Chase Brandon. So (laughs) this idea has been around for quite some time and it has been in pop culture quite frequently for quite some time. It also turns up in episodes of Spooks, which was produced both with an ex-CIA guy and advisors from the British intelligence services. So if they had such a problem with this idea, it wouldn't have appeared in quite so many television shows and major films. Counterwise, if they were using it as a means of deception and propaganda for skeptics and dissenters, why not put it in the exact sorts of TV shows and films that those people would watch? Now, I don't have a positive example in any of these of the CIA or MI5 or whoever planting this idea in a script, but the fact that they could have removed it and didn't. There's another one, Goldeneye. There's actually James Bond makes this wry joke in Goldeneye where um, you remember where the, the satellite it hits the Russian satellite uh, like radar building and oh, blows yes. it up. Yeah. Um, and the Russian government say, oh, no, this was just an accident during a routine training exercise. And Bond, Bond says something really kind of cynical and wry, like, you know, governments change, but the lies stay the same. Yes, I do remember it, yes. <laughs> Lovely. And, and again, this was full DOD cooperation, full Pentagon cooperation on this movie. We know that they removed lines from the script in this movie because they didn't want them in there. So they could have done it with that joke. They could have had Bond say something else there. He could have just, you know, sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, you know, typical Russian government or something. Right. You know, they had the Russian government give a different excuse for what had happened. They could have done any number of things, but they didn't. So if in 1995 in GoldenEye, they are already making jokes about how this is an old government lie. The notion that in 2005, 2010, they would still actually be using this as a live tactic on the ground. Mm. I don't buy it. This is why I don't buy it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it'd be much more likely that they're continuing to use this, put this in films in order to make people suspect that there are these false flag exercises going on when in fact there are not. People sort of see it everywhere when in fact it's not happening. I can only guess that that's part of the reason for this. Because otherwise I don't really see how it turns up in quite so many films and TV shows. Because that's the other thing, is I keep discovering new books and films and TV shows where this idea appears in some format. I gave a rundown of the ones in the episode. I'm seen at least one since then and that's only a few weeks ago so right let me just uh, change what i said because i i don't think i made it clear it's to make people perhaps anyway to make people as you say part of it to make people feel that there is a false flag exercise going on when in fact there's not that's not to say whether a false flag is going on it's just to conclude something false and be sent up the wrong alley in your mm. in your investigation that's the idea isn't it because mm-hmm. in all of these events where people are saying oh, hang on, there was an exercise. That must mean there's something dodgy about it. That must mean there's government involvement. 
it's not that in any of those incidences, I think it's completely implausible that there was government sure. involvement or even complete government construction of this event. You know, they actually planted the bombs or, you know, people within the government. Obviously, I'm not saying the Department of Agriculture, but it's not that that's in any way an implausible idea or an implausible suspicion or a wrong thing to explore in all of these events. Breivik, Boston, you name it, Paris. I think all of these are kind of worrisome, suspicious events that may well have been carried out by secret agents of NATO or people within MI5 or whatever else. Um, but I just don't think that the route to that involves anything to do with exercises anymore. I think in as much as those things, they're either complete coincidences, which is always possible, or they're deliberately planned coincidences to distract people. Yeah. These days, in our time, right now, that's what that has evolved yes. into. That was a very important message. I think we should take that to heart um, when we're tempted to just to go ahead and think, oh, yes, this is definitely the smoking gun, when it may not, in fact, be. However, in the podcast, you do go on to say something. I don't know whether this was a bit of hyperbole on your part, because you are given to that, Tom, are you not? Um, <laughs> you say something, <laughs> something like um, conspiracy theories in general are no threat to the establishment. Did you really mean that? I think at this point in time they are, because they're so common. I'm not saying every conspiracy theory. I'm saying as a general subset of beliefs, of things that people believe in. Let's face it, a couple of weeks ago, everyone was going crazy because some ex-MI6 agent alleged in a dossier that Trump was in the Moscow hotel room getting up to <laughs> some disgusting thing with some lady of the night. And this, mm. this wasn't the conspiracy theorists or the so-called conspiracy theorists saying this. This was the Washington Post and the Guardian and the BBC and CNN. They're all conspiracy theorists. Everyone at this point in time seems to be a conspiracy theorist. So the notion that that sort of belief, that uh, type or subset of belief in itself is somehow threatening to the establishment, I don't believe at all. Okay, but that's, Some that's something... conspiracy theories, maybe. Right, okay, but that, that's something very recent then, isn't it? So you're talking about an example then that was just, well, weeks ago, and I was thinking of countering what you were saying by talking about, well, was it not just a, a few years back, you know, David Cameron was going on about this threat to democracy and, uh, you know, the UN and um, how conspiracy theorists are somehow allied in terms of their narrative with extremism and uh, ISIS somehow connected. So that all spoke to me as if the establishment was in fact concerned about this and wanted to tire everybody with this obnoxious brush. It, it, but are you saying it's changed since then? No, no, no. I'm saying that that is simply a label. To them, it's not about what these people believe in. It's just, oh, we want to tar some people. So we call them conspiracy theorists and associate that with extremism. Because let's face it, it's not like any mm. government policy resulted from David Cameron saying that. It was just a statement. Yeah, but the statement must be for a purpose. And presumably it's to scare people so they shut up. And if, if that is the case, then it must be that they're taking it seriously as a threat. Um, <laughs> I don't think the purpose is to scare people into shutting up. I think the, the purpose is just to label and smear and governments label and smear lots of things all the time. It's a constant process of them giving statements saying, no, no, you shouldn't trust this person. No, no, you shouldn't believe that. No, no. I don't think conspiracy theories or conspiracy theorists are a particularly frequent subject of that kind of thing. I mean, how often have governments, you know, major government people actually said these statements? There's a handful of them. They get endlessly recycled in the alternative media as proof that we're somehow important. Mm. But in reality, there's that one Demos paper, uh, there's that idiot Aronovich's book, which 
Was Frank- that Voodoo Histories? Is that the one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, it is rubbish, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. There's a handful of this stuff. There really is. And frankly, they were but there is, they were there trying to associate that, um, yeah. conspiracy theories with extremism. There is actually a line in the seven seven official narrative about that. Um, that? Yeah, that they were trying to suggest that the supposed bombers, the alleged bombers, were not only opposed to the Iraq War, but also may have believed that nine eleven was some kind of false flag or whatever. I don't think those were the exact words they used. Well, they wouldn't have used the term false flag, but they did kind of hint at that. So this is a little something that they've kind of vaguely tried to associate, but it's ne- it never really adds up to much. It adds up to, you know, the odd book, the odd article, the odd statement, the occasional show on the BBC, and that's it. Although there is a project going on at Cambridge, is there not? It's called Crash. Well, it's under Crash, called Conspiracy and Democracy Project, and a lot of articles being produced under that. And I think you've had some sort of correspondence of people connected with that? I haven't had any correspondence with them. I did talk about okay. one of the academics who was involved in this project who has said some pretty yeah. pretty idiotic things, but at the same time has said some very intelligent things. I mean, it's difficult because the standard academic and journalistic response to conspiracy theorists is to say it's psychologically driven. Mm. Mm. But the thing is, having spent many years floating around in this scene and having met a fair number of people, I can tell you a lot of the time it is. Right. It's not right. untrue what they're saying. It's, it's kind of a simplistic and yes. overgeneralized and it's stereotyping. It's all of those things. I'm not denying that. But at the same time, yeah. most stereotypes are kind of have some basis in reality or at least are true for a chunk of people. Mm. So Very poor research, though, to make that kind of category yeah. error. But um, there we go. But it, does it not suggest that this is taken seriously by actually having this well, project I have, I have listened to at some... Cambridge University? I mean, you know, obviously there is some concern about it because there's funding for it. I don't think that says there's concern about it. I think that just says they put in a funding application and they managed to sell the people on giving them some money. Hmm. That's kind of how, how academia works. <laughs> I mean, this is what I mean, though, that you can't take the existence of a academic project at Cambridge as some kind of sign that you're being targeted. It doesn't matter what it's on. It's an academic project. No one pays any attention to these things anyway. <laughs> And even if uh, even if yeah. they did, it's like, so what? This isn't going to lead to some government policy whereby people who believe in conspiracy theories are going to be put on psychedelic drugs. That's not happening. Oh, no, no. However no. much people might want to believe that they're important enough for the government to target them like that. No, 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 I wouldn't suggest that. I think no, it, no, no. You know, I have thought that it works in the psychological sense, that if you are being associated with extremism, then you're less likely to do what you otherwise would do, which is talk about conspiracy theories, whereas in the past you were considered to be you know, a nutcase and all that sort of thing. Now you're considered to be a bad and dangerous person. Well, who wants that? You, you know, you can put up with being called a nutcase, but few people could be put up with being considered evil. I was thinking that's how it works psychologically. Uh, It would work that way on some people, but most of those people are people who are probably psychologically driven towards conspiracy theories anyway. If all it takes to make you shut up is for one person to say, however famous and authoritative they supposedly are, for one person to say that you're an extremist or a couple of Guardian articles to suggest that you're associated with extremism, if that's all it takes, then 
you were probably never serious about it in the first place. <laughs> oh dear, we can go back and forth about this one, can't we? <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, I, I see the kind of point that you're trying to make. Um, so I would, it's, it's I would agree that... It's a difference a in of, mentality, Yeah, to be perhaps people think it's... Yeah, give too much credence to the idea that it's a great threat to the establishment, and I think you're knocking the edges off that. I, I, would, I would agree with that, but I don't think it's of, of no concern to them. Um, but there we are. <laughs> Just slight difference of opinion there. Um, I think perhaps we'd better begin to wrap up. So, um, well, what I wanted to ask you really to end with, I don't know whether you are anticipating me saying this, um, if I were to ask you to give a, a general word of advice about this kind of thing, and I guess I am actually asking you <laughs> to give a general word of advice, what, what would you say to people? How can they avoid jumping to these kinds of conclusions and uh, seeing things that are not there? What can we do to avoid that? Uh, I would say the number one thing people can do is when something happens, when there's a big news event, big terrorist attack or whatever, ignore it for at least 24 hours. Because most of this stuff, most of this distracting stuff, most of the stuff that gets their hooks into people and they just can't let go of it, it happens in that first 24-hour period. Yeah, I'm not saying don't then when you've calmed down go back and look at some of that early coverage and see if there's anything in there that might actually warrant investigation by all means do but if something like this happens and your first instinct is to go on youtube or facebook or Infowars or whatever that's the mistake you're making yeah because that's where it that's where it starts to go wrong is that oh, I've got to go and find out, I've got to go and see something, I've got to go and figure yes, this out straight exactly, away. Exactly. That is a great challenge to people, actually, because I think a large proportion of people listening to this show would be, myself included, likely to do that kind of thing. Ah, what's the immediate reaction to that? And as you seem to be suggesting there, that's when you're most likely to get the false information because nobody has any time to conclude anything worthwhile in that short period of time. At that point in time, all media organizations of any political persuasion or wherever they might be on the spectrum, all of them are just trying to be first. They don't care if yes. what they're saying is true. Yeah. They're just trying to get something that someone else doesn't have. Indeed, they say it, don't they, sometimes? You heard it here first. <laughs> I say it quite a lot. Exclusive, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's, that's right. I have said a few times you heard, you heard it here last, actually, on my show, but uh, <laughs> there we go. That's just, And I'm proud to say that, because it does actually mean I'm speaking to people who have thought about it. Um, I do actually try, as far as my broadcasting is concerned, you know, to avoid the immediate knee-jerk reaction, um, which I'm sure doesn't win me many followers on that point, but nevertheless, it's, it's nice to think that you're doing the responsible thing. Anyway, Tom, thank you ever so much for coming on again is it's it's always great to speak to you it's always a of course a challenge um and no doubt uh, uncomfortable for some people to listen to what you have to say because of course in different ways we do tend to fall into the things that you're criticizing but i think it's good to be challenged on these things we do need to face these issues do you want to uh, remind people how to get to your your website it's spy culture is that spyculture.com yeah yeah spyculture.com that's where you yeah. can find all the articles, all the documents, all the podcasts, the episode of yeah. Clandestine. And also, uh, just quickly, probably for people who may have been following my work for a little while, we are actually thinking about doing a third season of the CIA and Hollywood podcast. Right. So if people haven't listened to that, look that up, because that's some of, I think, some of my best work or our best work. I do it with a friend of mine mm -hmm. called Pierce. And yeah, if you're into it, hopefully there'll be more of that coming later this year, we hope. So, yeah. yeah, please do go over there and uh, take a look at that. Now, investigating the 
Terror is your other website, but that I get the impression that's pretty much an archive now, is it? Yeah, that's an archive of work I did up until 2013, I guess. Right. Um, okay. Which is when I shifted the focus onto the new site and the new kind of direction in my research. But yeah, if you want to read about various things that I wrote about on there, I mean, World Trade Center 1993 bombing, there's right. quite a lot on that. I wrote about the Breivik attack. I've written a lot about 7-7, obviously. So if you want to hear more of what I've got to say on that score, then yeah, go to investigatingtheterror.com. It's not being updated anymore, but there's still quite a lot on there. Well, I think you said that you were going to take all that data and put it across to your new site. You haven't got around to that, I guess. Uh, I haven't figured out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can understand. Absolutely. I've been saying that I'm going to update my website for, well, months and months, and I still haven't got around to it, but there we are. Okay, well, Tom, thank you ever so much for coming on. It's a great pleasure to speak to you, and I uh, hope to speak to you again one day in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Julian. It's been provocative and a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>